And as far as dying of aging being natural, it's not natural at all. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Feedback Loop, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture from the individual to society at large. This week, our guest is Elizabeth Parrish, CEO of the biotech company BioViva. Uh, They're involved in various forms of health testing and analysis, but of particular importance would be their work with gene therapies and especially those that focus on slowing the aging process. Now, beyond that, what makes Liz's story particularly fascinating is that like the famous scientist in history, she actually injected herself with two of the gene therapies that her company were involved with before they were actually approved for testing. I got together with the first investor and I said, you know what, Let, let's let's light this on fire. Let's just see what happens. And not only that, she went to Colombia to actually circumvent the FDA's regulations so that she could try out these gene therapies. She'll explain more about why she did this. But my short answer for you at this point is that Liz is a wonderfully passionate individual. And I think that like many of us at SU, she seems to understand that disruption of the status quo is part of the push into the future. Now, before we get into the interview, I just want to give you some quick context uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this particular technology. In the broadest terms, when we're talking about gene therapies, we're talking about an experimental process that is meant to treat or prevent disease. This process involves introducing genetic material into people's cells, usually through either injection or an IV, that will either help compensate for abnormal genes the person has or to aid in the production of beneficial proteins. These proteins that the gene therapies assist with are biomolecules inside the body that are crucial for many of our functions, including, but definitely not limited to, repairing and replicating DNA, providing cell structure, and even acting as enzymes that play an incredibly important role in our biology. Now, many of the longevity efforts, like the ones that Liz is involved with, are specifically focused on a structure that protects the ends of chromosomes called telomeres. These telomeres get shorter and shorter after each cell replication, and it's believed that the shorter the telomere, the more likely a cell will experience a malfunction during replication. In many ways, this then would be why we experience such a terrible breakdown of our bodies as we get older to the point where we begin to get some of the most deadly diseases that commonly affect people in middle age and beyond. And this is why Liz is so passionately focused on anti-aging with her gene therapies. Because it looks as though this aging process is actually the core root of many of the diseases that not only kill us, but that so often cause the last decades of our lives to be so terribly challenging. With these diseases, Alzheimer's, heart disease, and cancer, they keep batting at the symptoms. But if you actually target aging, the biological aging of the cell, you can treat one thing instead of treating all of the things. So rather than treating the symptoms in the form of directly addressing maybe Alzheimer's or cancer, she seeks to actually treat the root cause, which is aging itself, to ensure that we not only live longer, but that we also live healthier lives along the way. It's a beautiful goal, and it was a real pleasure to talk to Liz about the science, the struggles, and the wins that she's seen in the field and in her work. So I hope that you'll enjoy. And as always, if this podcast strikes a chord with you and you want to keep hearing more content from us, 
please give us a rating, share us on your social media, or shoot us a message. This lets us know what content is important to you, and that will help inform us on how to best serve you, our passionate SU community. And so, without further ado, here is Liz Parrish. First, I'll just say thank you so much for joining us, Liz. Uh, To start off, I'd love to just hear you describe a little bit about what you feel your journey has been and why this is something that you've been so passionately dedicating your life to. Well, I I think that my journey is a very different journey than some people's journey in the field. And I think that that's what makes it exciting. So, you know, I always tell people, no matter what your background is, no matter what you're doing today, you can really move to change things in the future. You just really need a reason to do it. And, and I'd like you to find that reason. So, uh, so Um, in 2013, my son was diagnosed with type one diabetes and, uh, I was thrown into children's hospital. And of course, after spending a couple of years studying regenerative medicine, I was like, where's the cures guys? Like, you know, type one diabetes, how about, you know, some islet and beta cells or transplanted and, you know, how about we do some biobanking and, and how about we do some stem cells and, they, you know, they said that's, that's experimental medicine. And, you know, your son has a treatable disease and, you know, some kids here are dying. And so, you know, you should feel lucky. Well, I didn't at all. I mean, I just, it was like, it was like the emperor wears no clothes. You know, it's like it, like my child brain, I'm no genius. It's really my child brain that keeps moving forward on connecting dots was like, why would we let people die? if there are potential treatments that that could fix them, cure them, stop or slow a disease. And stem cells were not showing like any like t- terribly horrible effect. They were showing some regenerative capacity and there were great testimonials and there was great research in Harvard and Stanford. And yet, you know, the, the worlds weren't converging. So that really was uh, the moment that uh, I walked away from the stem cell area and decided to look just solely for cures for kids. What was out there in regenerative medicine in the whole scope of it, I had become interested over the last couple of years in genetics and what could we actionably do instead of just working on education, what could we actionably do to get uh, access to patients to, to therapeutics? Anyway, so that landed me um, going to a lot of conferences. And one of the conferences I went to was a SENS conference. It was SENS uh, 13, uh, 2013 in, uh, I think it was called SENS 6, in Cambridge in the UK. And they were talking about treating biological aging. And everyone who came off the stage, I said, wait a minute, how could this cure kids? And I found out there's like a direct correlation. Plus, you have over 100,000 people uh, dying every day of aging, and every one of them could be a test subject to actually create curative medicine for the whole world, including these kids, in a much faster rate, right? So um, that was what led me eventually to BioViva. So it's a little bit longer road. I come home, and I create a company that is going to look for investment into this area. Nobody wants to invest. They said, if you could prove that it works, I would invest. And BioViva was essentially built on the precipice of that. We will prove what technologies in regenerative medicine work, in gene therapy specifically. And 
then we will get people to invest. So that's essentially what we have built. So today, BioViva is a bioinformatics platform that has a partner company that allows people the consensual use of access to gene therapies you can't get anywhere else, regenerative gene therapies, and then we just analyze the data. So we're not in love with any hypothesis. We're not just a telomere and a myostatin inhibitor company. We're looking at all of the gene therapies and the ones that perform are the ones that will be interested in running for drugs for specific diseases. So with that research coming your way and what you found, uh, obviously one of the big situations that you were involved in was the fact that you injected yourself with the gene therapy and did a treatment um, outside of the country to kind of get around the FDA. What has been the result of that experience? What are your findings? Well, the, the thing is, you can't really do much efficacy data, right? You can, you can look at safety. And so, you know, when, when, so in 2015, when we launched the company, uh, I got together with the first investor and I said, you know what, Let, let's, let's light this on fire. Let's just see what happens. Let's do the first gene therapy uh, to treat biological aging and, um, and let's see what the results are. So we've pulled the two most promising therapies. One was a myostatin inhibitor that has that has been through safety and efficacy for muscular dystrophy. Uh, so we felt really confident with that one. The other one was a telomerase inducer because of the hallmarks of aging that we're looking to affect. It hits on the most hallmarks of aging. It's not going to be a cure in itself, but it hits on the most hallmarks of aging. And, and it had been through, you know, over a decade of research and it had been in animal models and it had reversed aging in, in gene knockout mice. So, uh, and it didn't seem to increase any risk of cancer. The, there's like the cancer folks and then there's the longevity folks and the, the, it doesn't seem to cross over. When you use telomerase in cells, they become immortal in the sense that they continue to divide, but they don't become cancerous. Um, so... I felt like that was really the therapy we wanted to look at. And in combination with the myostatin inhibitor, which, which also has uh, in several animal studies extended lifespan, those would be the two lowest hanging fruits. One, muscle up an aging population, which is what a myostatin inhibitor does. So I should be really clear about that. It, it's a protein that blocks myostatin and helps the muscles to grow. And um, that that's, you know, as you age, you lose muscle. And it's a condition that eventually is called sarcopenia. If it gets really bad, it can lead to frailty, people falling down, inactivity. We need to keep people robust and strong as they age. The second one was the telomerase inducer. So the caps of your chromosomes get shorter and shorter with, with each cellular division. It's associated with how long an organism lives. And to lengthen them creates more infinite amount of cellular, healthy cellular divisions because it has to do with genomic stability and all these other fantastic things. So, in 2015, we um, we said let's 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 do this. And I said, you know what? I'll take it. It's it's my company, and if it hurts somebody, it better hurt me first. And so, you know, what what can you glean from that? So we did get data from that. It was hard to get other people involved. Harvard worked a bit on the blood work. Other people worked a bit on the blood work to help us with some assays and some proteomics. Um, you know, what we saw, uh, which was great, is we saw, you know, a 50% reduction in my triglyceride levels, which could mean better heart health. We saw, you know, muscle mass increase um, in MRI imaging before and after. 
we saw um, 25% reduction in blood glucose levels, which we would expect with increased muscle mass. So that could be great. That would uh, transfer to um, type 2 diabetes and metabolic disorder over time. Um, we saw a reduction in C-reactive proteins, which is the inflammation in my body. Um, you know, so we, we saw lengthening of telomeres. You know, every telomere test that I've taken has been a little bit longer, not shorter, which is great. So there's no variation in there, regardless of their the level of accuracy or inaccuracy for the test. So we did see some changes, but it's an N equals one. And so it was really important uh, to help people get access to these technologies. And now our partner company is doing that. And I'm happy to say that um, as of this year, I will not uh, anymore be the first person to have, or the only person to have taken dual gene therapy. I was the first person, but now we, I have company. <laughs> Is the company doing their procedures in the States, in America? No, we would really like to. And I actually am hoping to meet with a gentleman who I can't name the name of uh, this year, who, who, maybe could actually allow us to be able to do that. I mean, the dream for BioViva would to be able to be open to treating patients right now, right here in the U.S. under uh, consensual use. So Right to Try doesn't really cover these type of technologies, so it's a bit flawed. But if we could have people who are terminally um, ill access these technologies right here in the U.S., we could really start pumping out data that would be meaningful, collected locally, and uh, that would be fantastic. But we have actually streamlined a pretty a pretty nice um, way to get data from these patients uh, and their doctors that are all in our network. And so I think one of the toughest things is finding doctors who will work with medical researchers, and that's what we're doing. So the, how we're trying to close that loop of what used to happen in stem cells with people doing you know, stem cell work offshore and having testimonials, but who the hell knows what just happened and did it work and is it a placebo effect? We are actually mixing these researchers on our bioinformatics program with the medical doctors, with the patient data. So that they have to have a, a myriad of data before the therapy. We need to know exactly what therapy they took, how, how much, and all of the data after, and then we'll follow them for years. And that's part of the contract. So uh, that will be really exciting. And, you know, I mean, efficacy data. So you could have, we could have the first five patients have tremendous outcome. Uh, but I think that, you know, you, you efficacy, I mean, you need to look at that over a lot of people. So we, you know, first what we can garner is safety. We know that everyone has been safe so far that has participated and they haven't had a, a bad outcome. Now it's, you know, looking at positive outcomes over time over a myriad of people. It's amazing that you're finally getting a chance to bring this to a larger audience and gather some real data. Um, I don't want to dig in too much into what's going on in that direction at the moment because I'm curious as to why you think there's so much resistance in the United States around this why you have to go around the FDA and why it's so hard to have something that seems to be so relevant to all of our lives. I mean, we're all going to age, we're all going to get older. You know, right now we're all looking at death as a looming reality in our lives. Many of us have kids, you know, there's a obvious uh, proclivity as a human to protect your young and to ensure the safety of the species. And you're doing something that sounds like it helps people feel better, live longer, you know, get rid of suffering in their life, which seems like our goal 
always, <laughs> you know, in almost everything we do. So why is there so much resistance to something that seems so blatantly positive? Well, I think that, you know, we, we live by a bunch of myths and those myths uh, are very risk adverse. And, and the more things, the more comforts that we seem to have in our life, whether they add meaning to our life or not, tend to make us complacent. Uh, we become resistant to change. Uh, we have laws and regulations and all these things that have um, catchphrases that sound really convincing. Uh, one of those would be a drug should be safe before it's you know given to the public. And yet we don't have any safe drugs. We have more people die this month uh, of adverse drug effects of taking their prescriptions as prescribed than we have ever had died of gene therapy. So, I mean, we, we're not very good with statistics, putting things into perspective. And, uh, the, you know, the legal system around that says a lot of things that people identify with. Drugs should be safe. Well, you know, that, that would be a, an amazingly uh, wonderful thing. And actually, we think that, that gene therapy in the long run will be much safer than a bunch of the small molecules that we take today that damage our liver, damage our kidneys, and maybe uh, actually help stave off a disease. If you look at the number to treat and number to harm of some of the drugs that we have today, the number to harm is actually higher than the number to treat of some of the, the top drugs, top 10 drugs on the market that are sold, sold in this country. But people are not aware of that. And so, you know, we, we live in this world where we think somebody else is going to solve the problem. I, I certainly, you know, did for, for much of my life. I blissfully lived uh, through much of it thinking that, oh, when I would read something in the newspaper, well, that will happen. A cure for Alzheimer's, well, that will happen. But look, it hasn't happened yet because with these diseases, Alzheimer's, heart disease, and cancer, they keep batting at the symptoms. You know, they keep saying, well, it's beta amyloid plaque. Well, it's atherosclerotic plaques. It's, you know, it's this or that, but it's genomic instability. But if you actually target aging, the biological aging of the cell, you start to, you, you can treat one thing instead of treating all of the things. So it's not, it's not a matter of aesthetics. It's not like I'm, people are, are selfish and just want to live young, longer, healthier. I mean, that doesn't sound like a bad idea to me at all, but it really is survival and it is not dying of Alzheimer's and cancer and heart disease. So whether you like the idea of treating biological aging, we, we know that we like the outcome of treating biological aging. So um, I think that it's really important that obviously we move this technology forward and we stop telling ourselves these myths and we stop being so risk adverse because right now everyone listening to this has a hundred percent chance of mortality because of aging they're all going to die so what are you going to do about that we're the only species on the planet that has the command of science to actually change that we can actually look at the what i call the phylogenic grocery store the whole of every organism alive, we can look at their advantages. It's gene code. We have gene code and we can see what advantage we can adopt. So it's not even really going, okay, you know, we're going to make something up and we're going to try to engineer a human that lives longer. We can actually find model organisms like whales and turtles and lobsters that live an extraordinary amount of time without cancer and many of the diseases we have. So part of it is just finding, is there a model for it? There are a model of, for many of these things. And then 
what is the differences in the genes? And and that's one way to look at it. We can also look at longevity studies and then see what things are, are at, of an advantage. But I think that we can all agree that we don't necessarily want to live old longer. Uh, we want to live healthy longer. Do you think there's, as part of that story, as part of that myth that is kind of resisting your efforts, um, do you think part of that is just tied into the idea that we as a species view death as just a natural process of the human experience? Because, and, and to build on that, I, I know you mentioned in a recent um, TED Talk at Oxford, I believe it was, that uh, what one of the things that defines us as human beings is challenge. So some could argue that the this looming specter of death is actually one of the greatest challenges there is. We wake up every day and we we know there's this pressure to live because death is so looming. So then we get into a question of, is there a fear that if you push death back or you push away this mythology that we live by, that you take away some of the meaning of life? <laughs> well, I think, I mean what what people do and it's a fact is you know we write stories and and we've we've told stories before we could write stories and we tell those stories uh to create some sort of meaningfulness of life and so the story um you know that death gives life meaning i mean how how is how is that the case how did your you know your grandparents or your parents dying actually give you meaning in your life um i i i, I don't I really don't know. So I think that we grapple for meaning. We're very poetic creatures. And, and as far as dying of aging being natural, it, it's not natural at all. Uh, people die of infectious disease, actually, without all of the countrymen of science that we have today. So if we go back historically, we don't die of aging. Uh, most of the population, anyway, about 2% of the population, it looked like maybe died of aging and people couldn't figure out what that was. That wasn't actually considered a blessing because you just kind of wore out over time. But most people died of, you know, accidents, uh, child mortality and, um, and infectious disease. So, you know, in just 60 years ago, I mean, I talked about that in the TED Talk as well, we thought that, you know, dying of cancer was normal. The, the government did not want to fund cancer because they said it's, it's a natural process. This is, you know, and look, now people are living decades after diagnosis because we decided to take it really seriously. So I think that, um, you know, we need to really re-examine that. And we we are the only creature creature on the planet that has the command of science and all, all species have uh, preservation. I mean, there is no species on the planet that I know of that is just like, oh, hey, here I am, you know, just take me out. So I'm just uncertain as to why we wouldn't uh, facilitate uh, that science to the best of our ability. I, I actually went to a... Um, a conference uh, about th theology meets transhumanism in Oxford, I think it was last summer. And I was really actually surprised and I had a lot of questions that were probably really rankling as to, you know, the, the, the people who were um, vastly religious felt like science was the end of God. And I just, you know, I, I, why wouldn't you say that it is because of your gods or goddesses? Like this exists because we were given this technology and to not use it 
I mean, how humans write books. So how is writing a book of science different than writing the Bible? I mean, we write these stories and we're just getting more and more factual. And yet there's this resistance by religious people to adopt this technology, not entirely because I've actually spoken at a couple groups that are uh, transhuman groups. They're vastly religious, but I was surprised at this, this particular event that their stories, their old stories were more important than the new stories. To, to build on that, it does seem strange that we draw a limit on when too much health or medicine is crosses a line. For instance, if you're a religious person and you discover you have cancer, there's a good chance that you're going to undergo chemotherapy. But chemotherapy is a, you know, a horrendous experience with radiation and it's very taxing to the body. And, and yet you're resisting death through technology. And then this comes around and is something that seems less invasive, less intrusive, less harmful and somehow it crosses a line, it seems like, to a lot of people because it attacks the root cause rather than the surface level symptoms. I think that though we're really coming around. So <clears throat> I've spoke to uh, people who are very religious and uh, not transhumanist type people or forward thinking people, and everybody loves it. I mean, they really love it and they see I think they do feel, I think it's coming around that they do feel that this is a, a viable technology and that it's actually a more natural technology than uh, the, the drugs that we've been taking now for decades. So for instance, gene therapy is a natural process. Viruses do it to you all the time. Um, that's, you know, it, it's something that's happening to you whether you go and undergo a gene therapy for an advantage or not. We're just saying now we have the ability to, to give uh, gene therapy for advantage. Um, we've been doing it to food forever. And, and I, it's not the GMO debate. There is no food that we eat today that looks anything like it did in the past. So whether we genetically modified it through breeding or splicing, which our radiation, which was common for a long time, uh, we have modified the food genetically. And, um, and as far as, uh, what people spend in end of life care, you know, highly people who, who might think that technology is, is man-made and yet the Bible was God-made or something like that. Um, they, they still spend the same amount of money trying to stay alive as everybody else does. So we know that we really value life. So if we start to take it seriously now and start to take some calculated risks, uh, that to me seem less risky, uh, than going the, the regular course, uh, we could, I mean, we can create a much better world, uh, a much better world with much less suffering associated to these aging diseases. And does it feel like the biggest obstacle to that then is the fact that baked into the regulatory model is this kind of inherent mythology that death isn't a true disease. It isn't aging. Isn't something that is, um, viable as a symptom yeah. Well, I guess that death is just nothingness. So I'm always like saying, well, we're not really trying to combat a nothingness, but aging itself, uh, it, the reason that I would like to see it uh, designated as a disease is because we can get a lot of funding in. At all, almost all research is actually turning that direction now. You know, you talk to anybody who's, you know, doing their their PhD or their undergrad work, and they're looking at the aging of the cell now. Uh, just for the last many years, you look at any page, 
a paper about you know Parkinson's and various age-related diseases, and they talk about the aging cell and the accumulation of damage and and where we're at right now. So, you know, I mean, there there are just a f- we need a, a, a more flexible regulatory system, and I, I would really like to work towards that in the U.S. I'd like to be able to do these type of therapies in the U.S. Um, I mean, what we have right now is a very risk-averse uh, uh, scenario with regulation, and then you know, in these clinical trials, companies hide a lot of data. You know, our idea is like we get the data and we have all the data and we show where does this drug work and where does this drug not work. So one of the things BioViva is doing is we're funding research and development at Rutgers University. And we're looking at a a large viral delivery mechanism. Um, Don't freak out, guys. Viral doesn't mean bad. It just means a, a little. I told you, you get viruses and viruses do little gene therapies on you all the time. So we just use the part of the virus that helps deliver the genes, but they don't they can't replicate and they can't give you any of their genes. They there's no bad payload. But we're looking for uh we're looking at a couple candidates that will be large delivery mechanisms for gene therapy so we can get several genes in at one time rather than just one gene at a time that we're doing now. And why are we building this now? Well, we have this offshore platform that we're looking at drug performance. We know it's not one gene to cure biological aging. So we want to do a testing on a slew of genes that have regenerative uh, capacity in, in human bodies and then see how to put those together and deliver them all at one time. And so you know, this is this is the, the type of thing we need to do. But with the offshore platform, what we're looking at doing is um, is look at drug performance and look at it as open as possible. It's not about hiding data. It's it's about where does it work? Where does it doesn't does it not work? And does it have any detrimental effects? So you can picture that as a linear panel. And if we could find some spikes on that panel where it works, and then we can bring another gene therapy that doesn't cover the same spikes. And then we start to fill in the data that we actually need to move forward. So, you know, why do we get drugs that come through the US FDA? They come through phase three trials, they hit the market. And guess what? They have to be pulled. They kill people. Well, there's there's something there was something wrong in that process. That that's why, you know, something that wasn't thorough, uh, something that that didn't take uh, things into account. So, as a company that believes in free will, agency, and autonomy, uh, the type of people we attract is either people who are very ill and there's there's no treatment for their disease. They've been sent home with you know uh, hospice care, or they're people who really want to pioneer technology for the world and you know it's kind of like getting on a ship and going okay we're going to find out if the world is flat or whatever and we're going to sell over there um only so many people are going to get on the boat but eventually everyone's going to be going right and so it's just those first people what do you see that that world looking like what is what is the end game perfect ideal scenario for you you get past all the regulation you get the kind of data you need what does the world look like? Is it at 25, everyone gets gene therapy every six months? Um, is this a end of childhood disease and uh, strong health until 90? Like, what, what, what do you see as that future? Do you have any idea what that looks like? Well, yeah. So, I, I, well, I, I, you know, I mean, we could, we could never pretend to guess the future. I think, you know, like the minute you go, it's going to be like this. You're, you're probably wrong. But I assume that in the future, uh, gene therapies will be given like immunizations and uh, 
they will be given, you know, time in, during periods of time where they will be more, most effective. So even when you're born, you already have telomere attrition. You know, even when you're developing, we think of that as not growing old, but actually you have damage that's accumulating and you have telomere attrition. Your body just has the image of actually maturing. Uh, so there may be some therapies that we would give at birth. Uh, there probably um, are things, modifications in the future that people will do to ensure that children are born resistant to most of these diseases anyway. Um, and then there, there are uh, therapies that you'll take over time. And then it'll probably also incorporate, you know, some stem cell type technology. So let's say you take a, a, a a wound, you know, you get cut or something, we'll probably all have like a stem cell type spray. It probably will be something that's ubiquitous, like uh, stem, uh, umbilical cord stem cells or something in an aerosol. And that's what you'll do instead of your neosporin and whatever. I think that it will be, it'll be maintenance. But if we look at genetics, we have the ability to massively halt, slow or reverse processes of aging. So <clears throat> We will probably in the future be using the strongest uh, drugs and then we'll be supplementing the ones that you have to take occasionally that maybe you can't keep upregulated all the time. So there are probably some mRNA therapies, you know, so you, you take your gene therapies, you incorporate as many um, genes that create homeostasis in the body as possible. And then the, the genes that show beneficial effect, but maybe detrimental effect over a long period of time you'll just take mRNA therapies, which so people know are kind of like gene therapies, but they only last for maybe 32 days rather than, you know, lasting a lifetime. So it'll look like, it'll look like, I think, a bunch of injections. Now, maybe they'll get those air guns and start pressing them in that way and doing various things, but we do not need to be afraid of injections. If it keeps you from having open heart surgery or losing your personhood uh, and becoming an Alzheimer's patient who, you know, terrible, terrible condition, you know, um, you know, you see these people fighting because people are trying to undress them and put them in a shower. They don't know who these people are. They feel like they're being raped. You do not want a future like that. Heart disease, you know, dropping dead on your family, silent killer, cancer, you know, with, you know, these long drawn out, uh, therapeutic, uh, they're like chemotherapy and radiation that ends up bombarding the body. We work with a doctor, Dr. Jason Williams. Uh, he does uh, ablation and immunotherapy with CDL4 inhibitors and PDL1s, and he has a much better outcome without bombarding the whole body. And this is where it's going. You know, the CAR T therapies. It's going to be more exact treatments. Cancer is something that will plague us uh, maybe forever because. It can happen because of the environment and various factors and genomic inst instability is probably going to happen, you know, even how much we fight it. So, um, you know, those therapies, though, won't look anything like they do today. It, it'll be like simple, easy peasy, catch it early, get a shot, take a little, you know, uh, image guided uh, treatment there and, and you're out. Do you see that as a moment where we see a big psychological shift in humanity like for you personally as well you're, you're dealing with the subject matter here in a lot of ways that is one of the most daunting philosophical things that we can consider as a person do you think that once we address aging or some of these diseases that most of us fear we're going to get that we're going to see society as a whole or the individual psyche start to shift i i, I hope so i you know 
there's a lot of people who treat people bad in the world. I'm, I'm hoping we'll treat people better because it's not really a re resource over short period of time sort of game. Um, I hope we treat the environment better because we're going to be here for a long time. Even when we're 80, we'll be able to go hiking. Uh, I hope that, you know, we, uh, we look at these bigger issues and we get more excited about spanning out into space and we'll be looking at gene therapies that will help us actually function better in space. And I just want people to feel more unlimited. I'm, of course, anyone who has anything on the internet, I, I actually am not affected by people <clears throat> saying negative things about me. And <clears throat> my company hates it because actually sometimes I'll use it. I'll come on and I'll say, somebody said this and I have a good laugh, but it makes other people uncomfortable. Um, we, But I, I am surprised. I mean, the thing is because I'm a mother. So I see everything as acting out, uh, feeling insecure, um, trolls like the troll type people that we see they're they're not people who are getting things done they're unhappy with themselves if i can help them have an unlimited life <clears throat> regardless of what they said about me um they may not be like that anymore i mean wouldn't that be beautiful because they won't feel <clears throat> whatever's making them the way they are it's because of limits and feeling invaluable and not feeling you know powerful in their life what are your what are your thoughts on other forms of like life extension and and in terms of more technological integration because gene therapy is interesting in that it's very biological are you concerned about the more synthetic approaches or do you think that the biological approaches are better are they on the same team Oh, I think all science is on the same team. I am—I don't ever play a zero-sum game. You won't catch me talking down somebody else's technology. I think we got to go, go, go. Now, I am for uh, keeping our biological body alive, and I am, of course, highly sold on gene therapy just because we can—it's something we can actually look out and you know we can see the differences. We can look at model organisms. We can see the differences between humans, and in animal studies, we can see the mass of differences in outcome. But I'm, I'm for all technology moving forward. Um, even things that I am not particularly <clears throat> interested in for myself, I'm glad that it exists. And as long as we have enough resources to move all this technology forward, I'm excited about it. And you know, the integration of technology that you were just talking about, we'll be able to do this with biologics. So <clears throat> we look at our phone now as an external device but in the future, that might be a, a and wouldn't it be great because you'd never lose your phone again? It might be a biological integration. You know, people are starting to code with DNA. Uh, we'll be able to, you know, modify uh, organisms to do a vast variety of things. So whether it's a, a CAR T therapy that we've already modified your own cells to to do something different, that's like programming to say I'm going to put you on a different program set now go in and do what I want, or it's programming our uh, microbiome or virome in order to create massive uh, advantages uh, that way, or it's uh, uh, coding our cells to create telomerase and myostatin inhibitors and, and, and uh, proteins that repair mitochondria and other proteins that upregulate uh, regeneration like clotho. Um, it's all kind of integrating technology into your body. And, and I'm hoping that in the future, uh, this is a, 
way off future, potentially, hopefully not, we'll be able to uh, create some of this technology that we use now that is like part of our brain, like our phone. Like, why, why do we freak out when we lose our phone? It's because we've just lost, you know, half of our brain's ability to, to not imagination. Our imagination is, is in our ideas are held inside, but I can't magically pull up the phone number of the uh, pizza place down the road. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to 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 deliver the pizza. So, I mean, we're if we could integrate uh, this type of technology, integrate neurons into our body that already knew how to, you know, helped us actually expedite the learning uh, languages or something like that. That would be really cool. But uh, I don't know how that will work uh, in the future. But I'm excited about all the technology that's out there because it creates a more unlimited future for all of us. Uh, from prosthetics uh, that already exist that are, you know, helping people um, actually function more normally, but then even function more than normally um, to, uh, you know, some of these glasses that you see people put on that have retina, you know, display on their retina uh, to uh, all the technology we have today to gene therapy. And I think that amassing it and uniting it will be um massively beneficial. And so to support your efforts and maybe those efforts as well, are, is there anything that, you know, our listeners or that the community could ultimately do to support what you're doing? Well, I think that, you know, participate, advocate and share information, you know, um, the most important thing that you can do is learn about the technology, share that technology with other people open other people's minds up about what's going on, uh, participate if you can in, in taking part of the human experimentation to extend human healthy lifespan, whether that is, uh, you know, joining a group that's doing, I don't know, um, some sort of, uh, vitamin or mineral type of thing. Although I think a lot of studies have been done on that. And to tell you the truth, it looks like excess is not good. So I, I don't suggest high doses of anything like that. But, you know, different people who are maybe doing um, exercise, uh, lifestyle, uh, diet interventions uh, to see what kind of output that you can get. Nothing that, you know, puts you into uh, dire of a situation. But, you know, and when you get to the point where it's necessary, you please get involved in these bigger technologies. Um you know, it's not guaranteed, but it really is the future and it will help us get the data on, on how these uh, technologies work. And it's a completely anonymous system and, you know, your uh, privacy is, is taken care of and uh, you really are spearheading the future for humanity. I'll leave it right there. That's beautiful. Liz, thank you so much for taking the time and exploring such a wide breadth of topics with us. I really appreciate it. Sure. It was, it was really great to be here. 